I'm Joe Devine, welcome to the TIFO Football Podcast. Recently on our YouTube channel, we've covered a number of teams from La Liga in our Tactics Explained series. We've done that with the assistance of La Liga journalist Simon Harrison, who's very familiar with the teams and has a great knowledge of tactics in Spain. Today, I spoke to him about each of those teams that we've covered. That's Barcelona, Valencia, Real Betis and Villarreal. And also, he gives us a promo of the Tactics Explained video that's out later this week on Las Palmas, who are currently bottom of La Liga. Before we get started, I just want to remind listeners that our second podcast, This Football Life, has now launched. The first two episodes are live as we speak. For one, Josh spoke to Bruce Grobelar, who was Liverpool legend and goalkeeper. He talks about his career in football and also the time that he spent in the army. And for the second episode, Josh spoke to Rob Swire who was Manchester United's head physio under Sir Alex Ferguson for a couple of decades. And that's also a fascinating listen. So please do go and give those two episodes listens. Give the podcast a subscribe as well, that would really help us out. And thanks very much for downloading this episode as well. Hope you enjoy. The obvious talking point with regards to Barcelona is their switch to a 4-4-2 under Ernesto Valverde. Under Pep Guardiola, Barcelona became synonymous with the tiki-taka style and came to represent the peak of attacking football in Europe somewhat. So Valverde's more reserved and balanced system seems an obvious departure from that. So Simon, is it is it a completely different Barcelona or is it merely a, a structural shift with similar philosophical touchstones? Well, I mean, there's been a fair amount of different Barcelonas. I mean, it's easy to obviously look back all the time to the tiki-taka. That's sort of the, the golden era. That's when you saw the best of Barcelona, the best with Pep Guardiola, the best with so many star players at their peak. Um, but, but I mean, since then, you've since had um, Luis Enrique, who, who did very well, who was almost you know a victim of his own success. He went with a 4-3-3, but it was very different to tiki-taka. It was more direct um, when they're playing out from the back. They did it very quickly, and, and it made them really predictable. So, so now it's kind of it's taken a shift from you had the Luis Enrique the direct four three three he then changed to a three four three which then saw which I think is ridiculous Jordi Alba kind of sitting on the bench for months at a time sort of thing mm. um, now it's it's back to I mean it'll be interesting to see what happens in terms of when certain players are back fit and he's got a full complement and who he chooses to buy during the January window but now it's very much more of this this 4-4-2 or this more of this almost 4-3-1-2 when you're in possession with Paulinho having a lot of license to get forward um, but it, it's a different Barcelona I mean it, you can say that the concepts in terms of they want control um, they want to have a lot of the ball those are things which I think will always be the case with Barcelona um, the one thing I suppose where Valverde could fall foul it's the fact that they are quite risk averse they are more balanced they are a little bit more realistic um, and obviously, if this season, for example, if he were to pick up a lot of trophies, would he then become a victim of his own success where the manner of how you win things then becomes the key point, really? Um, I mean, for right now, if Barcelona, they're coming out of a year where they perhaps didn't perform as well as they would have expected. Um, if they to go and pick up one, two trophies this season, I think next season, that's when you'll maybe have Valverde asked, do we need to play in a way that kind of pleases the crowd a bit more? Does it need to be more of this, you know, almost Guardiola style? It's interesting that, isn't it? I think that's something that only really affects big teams. And you can see it uh, with in, in the Premier League with Manchester United recently. The other thing I wanted to touch on uh, there was that when you talked about Luis Enrique, I know that it's accurate that you, you, you describe him as having done very well at Barcelona, but there's almost a perception that that isn't really the case, isn't it? Is that just because he's come after such a successful period with, with Guardiola? Well, it's it's always going to be a difficult act to follow in general. I mean, obviously, there were. It, it's hard to say. I mean, with, with Enrique, it was very much more, I suppose the word would be in, in the kind of modern context, pragmatic. I, I don't really know quite what pragmatic is meant to mean anymore, but in terms of that it's a bit more reserved, maybe a bit more, you, you can see the clear idea coming through it. Um, with, with Enrique, there was definitely no particular hallmark about it. It, it wasn't, you know, 
this team was a very good team. It had some very good players in it under Enrique, but you're not going to be talking about in 10 years, oh, the Enrique style, Enrique's Barca. You're yeah. going to be talking about Lionel Messi's Barcelona. I think that's the, that's going to be the thing with, with Barca in general, is that you had the Guardiola era, but since then it's been, it's been the Messi era. And obviously Messi's been big under Guardiola, but it was almost as if the identity could sort of sit above Messi to a degree. Now it's more... You know, every manager that's been in since it's it's been how how can they incorporate Messi the best, and mm. that's ultimately why I think when you're looking back on this in ten twenty years, it's going to be oh, do you remember that season when Lionel Messi scored X number of goals? Do you remember when Lionel Messi scored this goal in this game? It it won't potentially be you know even though Luis Enrique did very well, he's not going to be remembered particularly for anything too ideologically he's not really going to remember for much um, and it depends I mean Valverde could go the same way because he's a very safe pair of hands um, he's very intelligent he's astute he's just fantastic in press conferences he's a really nice guy everything like that but I mean ultimately when he's not coming professing to play a certain way and he's leaving it to you know the likes of Messi and that to add these flourishes to his system um, you do wonder whether whether he'll be a bit of you know overshadowed but that's not to say that he's not doing a fantastic job because I mean he absolutely is mm. We talked about uh, Lionel Messi there he obviously gets a lot of the, the plaudits for the team and rightly so but one of the other players that I wanted to discuss uh, that we also showcased in the video was Luis Suarez and his positional use within the team um, because you showed how he can effectively shut off space from the opposition by uh, closely marking a centre-back so I wondered if you could take us through this in a little bit more detail because it isn't all is what people would immediately associate with Suarez. You know, goals are the obvious thought, but his defensive contributions or attacking, depending on how you look at them, are, are key in this system, aren't they? Well, I think that Luis Suarez, he'll always be prepared to, you know, work for the team. I mean, playing for his nation, for Uruguay, they're always known to be very tenacious, very a battling team. Um, under Valverde at Barca this season, everyone's very much, it's more of a balanced unit. It's more, there's more cohesion. You, you look, you know, you look to Madrid, you look to the capital and you see that Zinedine Zidane, they, they don't really look like a team. They look like more of a collection of talented individuals. And right now, that's not been enough for them. Um, with Barcelona, everyone's pulling in the same direction. Everyone's working hard. Uh, you're more likely to see, for example, if the likes of Paco Alcacer isn't scoring goals, um, if Luis Suarez isn't scoring goals, his teammates will try and help facilitate that. It, it won't be a case of someone else's ego getting in the way. Um, in terms of how he would work back defensively, um, I mean... Obviously, this, this Barcelona team, it depends week to week. Sometimes they do press very, very high. Uh, other times they, they sit back a little bit more. Uh, the one thing to stress about Valverde is that he is quite reactive. He he is not afraid to change things during games and he's not afraid to, you know, see a trigger that he can then press on and, and look to make the most of. Um, but in terms of pressing a centre-half, I mean... What Barcelona do look to do, I think this was especially prevalent against Celta Vigo recently where they, they did drop points, but um, Celta Vigo... They like to play out from the back. They like to have a lot of the ball. Um, they've, they've got a former Barcelona coaches as their manager at the moment in uh, Jean-Carlos Unzué. Um, and, and ultimately, I think I think Luis Suarez, being that tenacious player, being that sort of terrier who will battle for the ball, and he will be quite nasty. I mean, he's not really he's not really hid that for many years, has he? Um, but when he's on the shoulder of that last man, it, it kind of forces central defenders to to play into a certain area of the field. And and say for example, if if Celta play out to their right centre half, if they if if they do sort of allow almost that centre half to have a little bit of time, it's only really to allow them a bit of time to set their sights and and ultimately see that they're going to be putting a ball into an area which is probably going to be under quite careful observation. Um, and ultimately, with Suarez coming in on someone's shoulder, it kind of says to them, well, you're going to have to probably play a risky pass over to your fullback on the opposite side of the field, or you're going to have to hit it a bit long and try and gamble. Um, and when you've got players like Gerard Pique and Umtiti, they're really, really colossal and good in the air. Uh, so you want to kind of be forcing teams to play up into those kind of areas. And similarly, if you're asking the centre-half to kind of clip the ball over to his fullback, in a time when that ball's in the air, the centre-back likely won't be drilling it because it'll be too much of a risk. The rest of the team can kind of shuffle across and, and ultimately the fullback's just posed with the exact same situation as the centre-back's just had. So it does make things interesting. It forces these teams to, to really try and play neat triangles. That's something which Celta were capable of in that game. Um, they've got some really good central midfielders, Celta Vigo. Um, but against some of the teams that are more limited, they're going to struggle to break down Barcelona. And, and ultimately, that's when the likes of Messi and Suarez, their hard work up top, it, it's going to really frustrate teams who haven't got maybe as much quality in terms of ball-playing centre-halves. 
You mentioned Valverde there being uh, quite reactive, I suppose in the sense that Barcelona now don't approach every opponent in the same way, although they make changes during the game, as you mentioned. Uh, now, to some, this would seem sensible or maybe pragmatic, picking up, picking up on that word from earlier, uh, looking to attack specific weaknesses or, or waylay particular strengths of the opposition. It does seem like a good way to manage games, but other people would, would call that reactive in a way that isn't befitting of a side like Barcelona, or they would just generally be negative about it, as we've seen with teams like Manchester United and the Premier League as well. So I wonder, where, where do you come down on this? Well, for me, I think you can easily kind of... You could say, okay, this is Barcelona, they've got X amount of money, they can invest this, they've got Lionel Messi, why should they be changing week to week? It should be down to the opposition to come and set up and try and frustrate them. Um, But I think Valverde is just a breath of fresh air in the fact that he's not afraid to, you know, try and gain ground here and there. Um, Ultimately, I think in bigger games, he, he... I mean, if, if you've got a team that's just going to go out and play one way, they're going to get kind of flummoxed in, in really big games. And and I think that El Clasico recently, I mean, on the 23rd of December, that that's when you kind of saw what a difference it makes having a manager that can make changes, that's clever, that's astute, because Zinedine Zidane, he, he put out the wrong team to begin with. And then during the game, they didn't really appear to... I mean, you've got Isco sat on the bench for, for the entirety of an El Clasico. I mean... Well, you can say, if it was for a greater good, for a, for a big style of play and, and, and the way that Real Madrid should always play, then you can kind of you can kind of say, OK, well, maybe that's a sacrifice worth making. But Valverde, Valverde compared to Zidane, I mean, Zidane hasn't got really a set way of playing. He hasn't shown in games that he can change things. And, and, and ultimately, I think Valverde's management, and especially his substitutions in El Clasico and beforehand in other games... He, he can he can change the game by putting the right man into the pitch, and, and whether that means a like for like change, whether that means you know bringing on a striker but potentially playing him wide, reshuffling the midfield a little bit, maybe moving a player like Denis Suarez a bit more out wide rather than playing him centrally, um, whether it enables you know Nelson Semedo to come off the bench at right back and it pushes Sergio Roberto up into midfield to give them more energy, I, I think it just makes them a much more dangerous tool because ultimately they're not only reliant on their players that they can be reliant on their manager, and I think that that is sort of where Real Madrid have stumbled this season. Um, in that they're, they're reliant on their players. They're not reliant on Zidane. Mm. Well, Usman Dembele has returned uh, from injury as well now. So how do how do you expect this to, to affect the setup of Barcelona? Because some people, particularly in the comments of the YouTube video, were suggesting that that might uh, see a return to a 4-3-3. I, I could definitely see that happening, yeah. It'll be interesting to see because I think, well, first of all, um, he'll be on the bench, you would think. I mean, they, they've not r- really risked him. They've let him have over 100 days of recovery. They didn't rush him back for El Clasico. Um so it kind of suggests that they're going to take things steady. So it might be interesting to see in games when he is brought on, do Barcelona then look to change? Do they look to kind of shuffle? Do they look to change to a 4-3-3? Um, these are going to be the clues that we'll have to pick up on fairly soon when Dembélé is back involved. Um, but I could I could definitely see them return to a 4-3-3. I mean, as long as the balance is still there and, and as long as Dembélé buys into what the rest of the team are doing in terms of walking, working back and offering balance then absolutely I, I could see that working. Um, but by by the same, it, it would be interesting to see in terms of Iniesta because Iniesta has played on the left-hand side of a, a midfield four. It takes a little bit of the pressure off him. He doesn't have to maybe work quite as hard. Uh, it, it doesn't ask as much from ageing legs. If Dembele is then on the left-hand side, on the left wing, I mean, it, it might force Iniesta to do a bit more work in terms of you know running back, chasing back, shuffling in but not not just to make things happen but also defensively and, and and ultimately as well it's worth mentioning Jordi Alba not too long ago I think last month he gave an interview where he said as you know as 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 bad as it was to lose Neymar in such circumstances I mean he he's in arguably the best form that he's been in for the last couple of years three years maybe um so it would be interesting to see does Valverde want to potentially play Dembele out on the left hand side and and it could have a negative impact on what Alba's been up to with Iniesta lately um, but he definitely, Dembele definitely offers something which Barcelona don't have, and that is just raw, raw pace. Um, and, and that's not to kind of, that, that's not to go with you know the, the stereotype of of a winger that's got tricks. I mean, he he has pace which not many players in his Barcelona squad have. So I mean, at first that could be a bit of a curse rather than a blessing. He might be used more of an, as an impact sub, and I guess we'll see from there. Okay, well let's move on uh, to the subject of of our second video now, which was on Valencia. Uh, the club are experiencing a bit of a revival at the moment under their coach Marcelino. 
They had a few difficult years under a string of managers, including Gary Neville, of course, but they switched now to a 4-4-2 under their new boss. So, Simon, what, what, what is the shift here? Is the squad much the same under Marcelino? Is it just the system that's the success, or are there particular players making a difference too? Well, it's it's a mixture of the two. I mean, I think when, when Marcelino took over in the summer, it, it was very clear that there would be a big shift, but... Maybe not that there would be a shift to the, to this extent in terms of the results they've picked up, in terms of the feeling around the club, in terms of confidence, just everything. I think everyone expected an improvement and an upturn, but they didn't expect to you know be going into the new year sat in the top four with Champions League football a possibility. I mean, I think people were maybe thinking, okay, we might be an outside shot for the Europa League, um, but with him bringing in this four four two, it's very balanced, it's very organised. It's basically meant that throughout the entire season. Valencia, they haven't looked like they're really out of a game at any particular point. They've managed to take points from Barcelona. They've taken points from Real Madrid. They've taken a point from Atleti on the opening day of um, on one of their opening home games at Mestalla. And and ultimately, they, they can just compete with everyone. Um, Marcelino's come in. He, he's made sure that everything is much more um, just. There's much more focus. Um, there's a lot more discipline. Uh, players in terms of what they're eating, in terms of you know keeping track of their weight and, and, and that having an effect. I mean, he said that obviously if, if a player's a pound overweight, he's not going to not play him on the weekend, but it's it's good that the players are sort of looking after themselves and, and that's obviously going to put them in the best position to, to play well. Um, but, I mean, it's the Marcelino effect in terms of the organisation, in terms of being demanding. Um, immediately, you know, what he sees and what he wants from his teams in terms of commitment, in terms of effort, in terms of battling, in terms of everything, really. That's something that the fans have immediately identified with. It's what they've been crying out for for a, for a couple of years in terms of what kind of commitment and, and what kind of effort they want from their players on the pitch to kind of just leave it all on the pitch. They want them to battle and fight. And as we saw against, as we saw in the last game of the year when they lost against Villarreal, um, the crowd still gave them a standing evasion, even though they'd lost their first home game of the season. Um, so, so it's just generally an upturn of belief. The four four two is important because it makes sure they're compact. It makes sure that teams can't come to Mustaya and, and break them down easily. And then when you've got the likes of Goncalo Guedes, um, you've got well Zaza staying around, having bought him and, and paid that fee to make it permanent. I mean, it's a combination of the two. The four four two itself, I'm sure that if they hadn't have strengthened over the summer, they would have been a lot better defensively. They would have been very tough to break down. But definitely the likes of you know Guedes, these players, they're the ones that make the difference. They are the ones which make the difference. When your team is playing a counter-attacking style like Marcelino wants, they're the ones that are taking the chance at the other end. Um, and ultimately, you know, it's a combination. It's all the pieces of the puzzle coming together at once for Valencia. And it kind of the only thing that remains to be seen is one: can they keep their players fit? Um, and two, can they now bounce back from losing that first home game at Mestalla? Because obviously, psychologically, that's a bit of a big blow. Mm. Well, one of the pieces of, of that puzzle is uh, Rodrigo Moreno, who plays as a, as a sort of second striker. Um, Marcelino's thinking, as you mentioned in the video, of having two up top is fairly simple and quite interesting as well. When he asks his defenders if they'd rather play against one striker or two, they always say one, which is quite obvious, I suppose, isn't it? Uh, so pushing two up clearly causes issues for the opposition defence. Along with Barcelona's 4-4-2, I wondered if it would be fair to call two up top or even the 4-4-2 a, 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 as a recent sort of trend in La Liga, or is that going too far? Because from my perspective... I would say that, you know, and I don't really follow La Liga, but from the Premier League, uh, three years ago, there was almost no teams playing in a 4-4-2, and it, it seems to be experiencing some sort of revival, although that could just be me. <laughs> well, uh, it, it, I mean, it's interesting. I mean, in terms of the Premier League recently, I suppose you could say uh, Kike Sanchez-Flores, uh, who is now Espanyol manager, uh, at Watford, he was very much using a 4-4-2, which was kind of interesting in terms of um, with, with Dini um, up top, with Igalo, that they very much played in a kind of way that where they would play off each other. Obviously, Dini being the big man, um, Igalo maybe offering a little bit more in terms of mobility. And really, I don't know if I would necessarily say that it's a trend as such because you've got Marcelino. He's always sort of peddled this style of play. It just seems to have happened that gradually, as he's been entrusted with bigger teams, better players, bigger jobs, that obviously he has better tools at his disposal to reach that end goal that he's always been looking for. Um, I mean, at Villarreal, he enjoyed great success with the 4-4-2 and really you're seeing the more or less the same blueprint here really um, I, I wouldn't say it's the same as as Barcelona's in terms of um, at Barcelona I, I find it quite strange really their, their midfield for in terms of the, it is really very fluid um, players for example 
the likes of Ivan Rakitic, he can find himself very wide on the right-hand side. Similarly, he could find himself quite tucked in. It is really quite malleable. Um, with, with this, it's more the, the the job roles are more. It's kind of more rigid um, in in terms of that you have Kondogbia. He's seen as more of a a screen for the defence. He will do more of the the dirtier work defensively. But similarly, he's very very good on the ball too. So it's not as if he he harms him in any way. Um, Parejo, he's very much has to be the main playmaker. He's keeping the ball moving. He's circulating everything. He's making things happen in, in midfield from set pieces. Obviously, he's very good too. Um, and then out wide, I mean. I suppose you could argue that with Barcelona's midfield four, that Iniesta comes inside, he looks to, to, to cause some problems, and Alba goes flying down the, the left flank on the overlap. And I suppose that that is where you can kind of see some similarities with Valencia, in terms of if the build-up plays quite slow, they will ask and, and wait for the likes of uh, Jose Luis Gaia or Martin Montoya to, to come up on the overlap, and both of those can deliver from the wide areas. Um, I mean, Montoya's been criticised defensively, but in terms of his delivery, he, he can put a ball in. Um, but the one thing which I think is completely different to Barcelona in terms of the wide men is is just the, that bit of pace. I mean, Carlo Guedes, we've seen him score some outrageous goals on the break this season. He's just got he, he, when he puts his foot down, he, he's kind of just gone. And 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 Barcelona don't really have a player necessarily like that in that same kind of area. Um, but but I, I mean, I would definitely say that four four two. It's something that a lot of teams are using now to plan the counter attack. Uh, you can see it in. Uh, La Liga in terms of Getafe have done very very well this season with a similar sort of system um, but but equally there's teams playing the same style such as Girona they're playing with more of a 3-5-2 a of sorts and I, I think really the trend is counter-attacking it, the, the trend is ensuring that number 10s that this isn't the area in La Liga for number 10s uh, every, everything's very compact in between the lines and then you look to break and do the damage while the opposition is stuck with more men behind the ball than they would ideally want I suppose Okay, well, sticking with the four four two, but uh, talking about defence, we also looked in, in the video at how Valencia defend compactly. One of the things they do is forcing opponents to make long diagonal balls over the top uh, in an attempt to, to make progress up the field, or even just to keep the ball. And it struck me that this isn't dissimilar from something that, that Alex and I talked about regarding Burnley a few weeks back. Uh, Burnley position their defenders to encourage longer shots on goal and to try and funnel the shots directly towards the keeper, so they're more likely to save them. And that comes out interestingly in the stats. You see, obviously, that they concede a lot of shots on goal, but their goalkeeper is all, always, nearly all, all, always at the top of, uh, of, the, of the saves list as well. Um, and since Burnley also play with a 4-4-2, uh, <laughs> this might be quite a difficult question to answer, but is it fair to call their system similar to Valencia's? Are there hallmarks that would seem similar, or is that, is that far too general? I mean, you, you could say, um, in terms of, I suppose, the, the concepts but behind it would be the same. In, in terms of that you want to stay compact in between the lines, uh, you, you would probably want to stay quite narrow as a unit because ultimately, if, if you're playing as a narrow unit, say with your back four and with another bank of four just ahead of them, I mean, you, you're kind of inviting and you're kind of funneling the other team to, to, to look wide because that, that's where the space is. And, and, and ultimately... Uh, th- these two teams, I suppose, with with Burnley or, or Valencia, you know, th- they're looking to just be frustrating. They're looking to play on the break. They're looking to kind of do their damage. In they, they might not necessarily have a huge amount of chances. I mean, there have been some games this season where Valencia have, have created a lot. I mean, against Villarreal most recently, they created a lot of chances, and really they just couldn't be clinical. But I mean, th- they wouldn't mind at all if they were to win one nil from one breakaway and, and score once. I mean, it's it's just I suppose the mentality is is sort of the same. Um, I mean, Neto, I would really say he's not really tested all too much from range. I think that Valencia are just very, very set on on getting the ball wide. And and I think really they can sort of trust in the likes of Jason Murillo or Ezequiel Garay or Gabriel Paulista. They're all good in the air, these central defenders. Um, And ultimately, these kind of systems, that they protect limited defenders and make them potentially look a bit better than, than they are. I mean, you can maybe get away with having a more limited central defender, but if he is, you know, not having to move potentially more than 10 yards either side, unless you're caught out with a ball in behind the lines, you know, you can make them look very, very good. I mean, you could say in terms of uh, the, the, the team which won the Premier League from Leicester, I mean, where's Morgan and, and Robert Huth? If they were maybe exposed a bit more, if... if uh, they played a higher line if they were maybe dragged out and asked to cover across a little bit more. I mean, I don't think that defence would have been as watertight if uh, Ranieri maybe had sallied forth a little bit more. Um, no. But so I suppose but you, you could you could also even uh, take the example from Burnley. In fact, last season Ben Mee and Michael Keane had very similar stats, and if you looked, you know, solely at that, 
uh, you would assume that perhaps even Ben Mee was the superior player in some of those categories. That's obviously anyway, it's quite you know a comment to make, but that's obviously not so much the case. Um, but then I suppose the 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 opposition to that would be well play them in the way that they're going to play best and you know why would you play a player in a position or in a style in which they wouldn't succeed you know it doesn't make any sense does it exactly I mean it's just uh, to, to mention pragmatic yet again but it's just it's just logical it just makes sense I mean if, if you've got defenders um, for example I mean now with Burnley having having lost Keane I mean you, you come in with someone like James uh, Tarkovsky he's just very a strong player good in the air very uncompromising and ultimately you kind of if if potentially Burnley were playing out from the back um, there would be maybe a list of 10 attributes that you would want from this player if Burnley are playing a, a four-man defence and they're playing very narrow you could probably cut that list in two because you, you won't be needing him to do such a wide range of jobs I mean generally they'll be asked to occupy a certain space um, and, and if they can maybe even go just man marking. I mean, I, I from from kind of well, it, I suppose I don't know if I kind of experience really, but having played as a centre half myself, I'd much prefer being able to follow a man and ensure that I was to frustrate that man rather than be you know thinking about a lot more than that. I mean, playing in these kind of units, it kind of it, even though it gets the best out of the collective, it does kind of free the individual to be quite one track in what they're thinking. Um, and, and ultimately, I think when, when you're playing against these big players and these big teams, if you can kind of reduce the game to one-on-one battles in certain areas, and you've got um, some players at central in central defence who are very, very uncompromising one-on-ones, whether it be aerially, whether it be um, strong and, and not allowing players to turn, I mean, you're kind of turning the game into your favour because you're allowing it to be played in these certain ten-yard boxes on the field. OK, well, let's uh, move on to Real Betis now. Uh, earlier, we talked about Valverde's Barcelona approaching different games in a different way. Kike Setien's Real Betis are arguably the total opposite of that. Uh, you describe Setien as someone who has a very clear team identity and is very consistent with that. Uh, I found him very... I didn't really know much about him before this video, but I found him very interesting when I was making it. So I wondered if you could tell us a little bit more about him and his ideas. Well, uh, it's interesting because you have a lot of... Well, in modern football, I suppose, it's always talking about it being a results business. It's always talking about, you know, you can't complain, say, if there was a managerial sacking down to them not picking up the points required. I think Setien is just completely, he's just from a completely different era, almost a different train of thought, a different school of thought. He will always play in the same way. Uh, When he was a player, he would would be a very uh, technically gifted midfielder and, and really... It's almost as if his teams are sort of like the dream, what he would have liked to have played in himself in terms of he likes a very aesthetically pleasing side. Um, he, he's just uncompromising, but but not in not in a way where you'd kind of maybe expect that, you know, the stereotypes in terms of, OK, the minimum things that I'm demanding each game will be, you know, that you work hard, that you battle, that you show commitment, that you do it for the fans, etc. His, his is more in terms of, I want this to... to to be enjoyable, I want to be entertained. Um, I remember going to uh, Anoeta earlier in the season, um, and and it was Real Sociedad four, um, Real Betis four, and it was just it was an obscene it was an obscene game. It, it defied logic. Um, it it was just mental. But then he just comes into the the press conference afterwards and and kind of said, "Well, I want my team to play this way. Uh, we got a point. I would have liked to have, to have been three, but we've scored goals. We've entertained." And, and and really that's just what he sticks to and it, and it's really down to kind of the, the president or the chairman of these kind of clubs to think you know are we prepared to maybe sacrifice the short term um, to, to have a bigger long term future with this big identity I mean you've said you've, you've said for example with, with Ernesto Valverde um, d- does he have the sort of Barcelona style will, will we see you know a, a reaction to that in the future and I think we probably will and it'll be the same with Raul Betis but probably inversely because you'll have that he'll be sticking to the philosophy and he won't waver and it depends when the fans get sick of it really and I think that, that that's what it will be if he is to leave Raul Betis it, it will be because the fans are sick of him I think I don't think it would necessarily be um, the, the, the board I think when you appoint someone like Setien, you know that long term that's where you're going to be looking because you need to think, okay, well, he, he puts his trust in some younger players. He's very possession focused. You need to allow him to get his own personnel in. I mean, during the summer, you had the likes of um, Andres Guardado, um, Javi Garcia. They even brought in like Jordi Amat at centre back to, to be better on the ball. Zuel Fidel from Alaves to be better on the ball at the back. 
um, and you need to give it time to bed in. But I mean, everything about him kind of defies logic. I mean, in 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 the modern game, you're expecting okay, points are what a manager is judged by, and Setien's just happy to sit there and say, "Judge me on my football." We talked about Betis uh, always trying to play out from the back as well, which is one of the hallmarks of uh, Setien's system. You know that this does cause issues, and that Betis will presumably sometimes concede after a mistake for fear of booing outfield or into touch. This is something that was also often discussed uh, about Eddie Howe's Bournemouth, and it can be quite difficult to understand, I think, when you see teams faltering at the back and trying to play it out, conceding in what would seem like an unnecessary fashion to the untrained eye. Uh, so to the trained eye, Simon, I just wonder why is it so important to Setien's system to play out from the back? Since, you know, due to the risk that it incurs, it must be... Well, presumably it's crucial. Yeah, well, there will there will be some, you know, there, there will be some unavoidable scenarios where it's kind of you've got to put it into touch, but it it's kind of just the attitude, just to if it's possible to play out, then then do it, and and ultimately with these kind of teams, it's because that the coach has got them playing in such a way for such a long period of time, whether it be Bournemouth or Betis, that he's prepared to to say, look, this is this is my way of playing. It's not your fault if this happens. This, you know, we're bound to have some errors. I mean, it's not as if footballers are robots or anything like that. I mean, you're bound to have the odd occasion where someone will potentially play a pass that's just dreadful or they'll take a poor touch. A goalkeeper will take a poor touch, for example. And and this is nothing new with Setien. I mean, at Las Palmas last season, you kind of just had to hold your hand up and if their goalkeeper's left with egg on his face because he's taken a bad touch and, and someone scored from it. I mean, it, it's kind of the, the idea of, you know, for, for the, well, almost the greater good sort of thing, that these things, that they, they can happen. When they do happen, it's a shame, but it doesn't prove that this system doesn't work. And, and I think it's more, you've got to hold the faith that if you keep playing this way, you're going to get more rewards than you are going to get, you know, egg on your face with the goalkeeper. I mean, this season you've seen, uh, well, for Betis, um, Adan, he's, he's made some mistakes, but ultimately it's just, it's just Setien saying, look, I know that potentially maybe the keepers aren't you know super super comfortable playing out from the back. I mean, in past years at Betis, they've not played out from the back. They've not played attractive football. So for Antonio Adan, after a few years of kind of just being the last bastion in defence and and just being asked to do a lot more with his hands and his feet, it's something completely new. But it, it's a learning process for everyone. Um, and and really, just with how Las Palmas like to play in terms of getting the ball out to you know split central defenders, they they position their wing backs very high, playing out from the goalkeeper. Um, I mean, I mean their their central midfield three are all very very good on the ball always. Um, so it's really just being able to get the ball transition from defence into midfield and then look to make things happen with some very talented technical players. Um, that's not to say that sometimes, for example, if if there's uh, an oversight on on the the part of the opposition, and and there's a clear pass to play uh, with a winger potentially having a chance to get in behind. That they'll obviously play it. I mean, but it, it's it's kind of you play it when it's there. Uh, you try to always play it, but it, but not to be. You're not going to be completely one eyed to the point of say Matteo Kovacic in El Clasico just following Messi and 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 to the detriment of a team where Rakitic then strolls through, feeds a pass into Sergio Roberto, and then he allows Luis Suarez to to tap home. Um, so th- there is a balance, but ultimately it's just Setien willing to say I'm, I'm responsible, um, and and for us to play out and from the back and have so much of the ball and and to entertain the fans and for Setien to enjoy watching it. Ultimately, I mean they've got to keep playing. I think I think the time when a Betis team don't play out from the back, that's the sign that they don't believe in Setien anymore, and, and that's kind of when he would have to go. Mm. Well, another similar function to that as well is the high defensive line. Uh, the video shows that the high line, while risky for obvious reasons, is also vital to enable the fullbacks to push up and, and release the wingers. This touches on a point that, that we've been keen to make before on this podcast, that whilst attack and defence are, are often discussed as two different things, more often than not, one function will have purpose in both of those categories. Uh, and this is also clear in, in the case of uh, Real Betis, is it not that, that essentially that they're the same thing? Yeah, I mean, it, it's massively causal I mean in terms of that you're kind of dictating to the opposition where they need to be pressing how they need to manipulate their own players it's very much you know a kind of it, it is something which is sort of a cliche I suppose in, in Spanish football terms with with the whole um, a game of chess sort of thing I mean this is something that's kind of mentioned with Setien quite a bit it's obviously for every action that there's going to be a reaction uh, and it's kind of down to with, with Betis setting up in the way that they do it, it's asking it's asking teams to come and press them, uh, and and ultimately they they've got the faith in themselves 
that they can sort of exploit that fact and be able to play their way out of trouble anyway, just just from the fact that technically they're very good. Um, and 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 really, yeah, I mean, I would say that in terms of playing the high line, when there is a mistake, it's it's just it's massively it's just more obvious. It's it's an it's an immediate threat. It, it's not as if uh, centre back two. I mean, that they have Zouef Adali, who's a very good player, and I, I I really like him, but. Aside from that, I mean, they have Isa Mandi, they have Jordi Amat, and, and they're not very talented players. And, and I think that these players, you know, Setien will bring someone in eventually. But for now, I mean, it, it is very, very uncompromising when they are kind of caught out, when there is a mistake. I mean, Amat's been sent off twice in the last three weeks uh, for varying degrees of stupidity. Um, so, you know, it, it does expose certain players. But I think it's just that long term, you know, they're going to play this system inside out. They're going to be having so much of the ball that even these players who, when setting arrive, might have thought, "Am I on my way out here?" Like I don't, I've never really played in a style like this before. They'll have played it so so much, and it will just become natural that you know, maybe to some teams, if Burnley started doing it, you'd think, "Well, uh, <laughs> are they going to make mistakes? I mean, is someone going to look nervous if they're given the ball and they're asked to bring it out from the back? Are they going to look nervous with that?" Um, and, and with Betis, I suppose it just becomes second nature. <laughs> I mean, it, it just becomes something where it almost you don't think of it as a risk because it's just it's it's normal and and players understand how much space they have around them and when and and, and when they can have the ball and they'll have been in these situations so many times where they're so deep or so close to the byline or offering from a goalkeeper that's under such high pressure that I suppose it's just muscle memory at the end of the day. Yeah. OK, well, let's move on to Villarreal. Uh, so with this team, we have a, a departure from the 4-4-2 we've seen with some of the previous teams. In fact, current Valencia coach Marcelino once used this system at Villarreal, who was followed by Fran Escriba, who largely tried to maintain those ideas. Before the current coach, Javi Caella, switched the team to a 4-3-1-2, which also does look a little bit like a 4-4-2 diamond. Uh, how is this uh, system different from, from what came before, and what do you think of it, Simon? Um, for, for me, I mean, it's just a breath of fresh air, because, well, w- when Marcelino was, um, well, it was back at El Madrigal when, when uh, <laughs> Marcelino was in charge, so a lot's changed since then, Um but he he would play very much in the same kind of style as he, he does at, at Valencia now. So it would be reliant on the wing backs providing a lot of the width. Um, the wide midfielders would they be asked to come inside and play as these sort of interiors, a sort of I would say a wide playmaker sort of role. Um, and and ultimately, you know, they were just great to watch. Um, I think one of the things with Marcelino's um, Villarreal and and even coaches before him, you always knew that the kind of triangles that they could play would be something quite special and and Marcelino always would say that you know you, you you're trying to get to this level of automation you're trying to almost turn your players into semi robots i suppose in terms of in certain situations in certain scenarios that they're just going to act naturally they're just going to react as though they've always done it before um in terms of how Javier has changed things um Fran Escriba, he he as you said tried to kind of squeeze the last drops out of Marcelino's system when when Escriba came in it was the week before a Champions League playoff game against Monaco um, and, and Marcelino left because there were argue, kind of arguments uh, with the board over signings people, deals not happening uh, Marcelino being quite abrasive um, so Escriba was kind of thrown in as a caretaker and, and he managed to prolong you know the, the ideas that Marcelino had They'd maybe be a little bit tighter at the back. They'd be a little bit more reserved. But ultimately, it was sort of the same. Um, but Escriba, gradually, I mean, the momentum started to wear out. The, the wheels fell off. They lost 4-0 away to Getafe, which was unthinkable. And and, and he went. But now with Kayaka, I mean, as you've said, it's it's more of a diamond. Um, all, I think the most important thing is that Escriba was using Pablo Fornals, who's a, a really talented Spain under-21 international. Um, they signed him for Malaga in the summer. And, and he was very, very good for Malaga at the tail end of, of last season. Um, and he was being played out on on uh, in like a wide role in this four four two under Escriba, and it was just a waste. Um, Kayak has come in, he's named this sort of four three one two, and and Fornals is that you know that middleman. He connects everything together, and it, it's just changed everything because he's such a good player. He's such a good young player. They picked him up for for really peanuts compared to what they could probably sell him for now. Um, and that's what it kind of all revolves around. They've got some extremely good technical central midfielders. They've got Rodri linked time and time again with a return to Atletico Madrid eventually, maybe in the summer. Um, and and it's just it's just more interesting. I think that's the thing. I mean, the, the lights under Marcelino, it kind of flickered for a season or so. Escriba had been pragmatic. He'd been reserved. He'd, he'd been quite tight at the back. 
but the fans want something different because ultimately it comes down to the same thing we mentioned before. You know, the fans get bored of watching a certain kind of football for so long. And now under Kayeka, he's come in, he's he's not prepared to give young players a chance. So obviously, Rodri was a, a fixture in midfield anyway, but you've got Fornaus, you know, being they're building around Fornaus, which is interesting. They've got Danny Rabber uh, playing up front. He's, he's a young player. Uh, with Kayeka having previously worked with, you know, the B team, he knows all of these young players. Uh, we would have seen more of Leo Suarez, who'd previously been at Boca a long time ago, but he's injured his knee ligaments, otherwise we would have seen some of him. Uh, there's Ramiro Guerra, who's a very good central midfielder. Uh, he's played a little bit here and there. You've got Paul Torres, a, a, a young central defender. He's he's just not afraid to promote young players. And ultimately, I mean, with the new system, giving Fornaus all this responsibility and, and just giving the young players the belief that they can you know make the jump from the B team to the first team, it's just an exciting time, I think, really, to be a Villarreal fan. Well, let's talk about Fornells then, because he, he's uh, key to the current setup, as you say. You describe him in the video as playing the Enganche role. Um, if he was in the Premier League, would people call him the number 10, or is that simplifying it somewhat? Well, I think, I mean, in terms of the Enganche, just in terms of being that link um, from midfield to attack, he, he's very much the, the player that you sort of go through. He's got a fair amount of liberty to sort of go as he sees fit in between the lines and, and obviously that's where there's the parallels to you know the, the, the number 10 but th- there's one kind of problem with that in the league at the moment in, in that there's a lot of teams that will play 4-4-2s four, four there's a lot of teams that will play 3-5-2s and, and it doesn't allow much space in between the lines. Um, I mean, you've got the likes of Isco and uh, Marco Asensio sat on the bench at Real Madrid, you know, and and I don't think this would be the case if these teams were coming and maybe being a bit more open. Um but I mean, uh, you, you could definitely you could call it a, a number ten, I, I suppose. It, it's just basically entrusting in Fornals and saying, look, you've got the technical ability to beat players, you've got the confidence and the composure to play through balls and see passes that others might not. Uh, similarly, if he's got the chance to pull the trigger, he, he's not bad in that regard either. He's just a very complete player, and, and and that's why it's maybe not as risky to give him all this responsibility because he can kind of flit in and out of the game. Um, in terms of his spatial sort of awareness and 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 being in the right place at the right time, he he's just very very good, and his way to final ball is brilliant. Uh, the only bad thing to say, really, for in a Viral kind of perspective at the moment, is um, uh, Javi Keke has confirmed today. Um, that Cedric Bakambu, who's been scoring a lot of goals for them this season, he'll be joining a Chinese Super League team. I think it's Beijing Guayan uh, for for forty million euros, and he was very much you know the man that Fornals would feed in behind. Very very quick and explosive player. Um, so now it will it will it's a new challenge again for Fornals because he has Carlos Baca, who's looked very very good recently. They've got Danny Rabba, a young player. Uh, they've got Nicola Sansone, who's coming back from injury. And they've got Enes Unyal, who they'd loaned out to uh, Levante on, a, on an emergency loan deal. They've brought him back, I think, knowing that Bakambu would go. So now, I mean, the kind of impetus is even more on Fornals because he needs to get the best out of Unyal. Um, he needs to keep ensuring that, you know, there's that supply line up to, to Carlos Baca. Um, but it, it's, a, I mean, pa- Pablo Fornals, if... if Potentially, people might not may not have really heard too much about him when he was at Malaga, you know, for obvious reasons. I mean, Malaga have struggled for the last couple of years. They could go down this year, um, but really, he was the biggest. They lost some important players during the summer. I mean, they lost Sandro Ramirez to Everton. They lost Ignacio Camacho. He he moved to the Bundesliga, but very much for now, the young player, the the big hope, the big star. Spain under twenty one international. He went to Poland with with that squad in the summer. Um, he's just the the main man, and it, and it's refreshing to see that after. Basically, Escribo was keeping the four four two. I think for fear of the fact he had no other ideas himself. Um, now that that's changed, and you've got Fornals, you know, at the rudder of the ship, as it were. It, it's it's just exciting, and, and I think that you're going to hear a lot, lot more about him over the next season, two seasons. And I think they bought him for around eleven million euros. I mean, now that there's no way he'd go for any less than forty or so. I wouldn't say. So, I mean, really, we've talked about, say, for example, Lionel Messi being really important to Barcelona and almost, you know, the identity being to an extent sort of sidelined by that. It, it, it wouldn't be crazy for Fernals to become that important for Villarreal. I mean, since Escriba has gone, he's he's looked fantastic. He scored his first goal for the club as well. Um, and, and there's a lot to be excited about in terms of Fornals, definitely. OK, finally on uh, Villarreal, something which we've, we've seen with this team, which we've actually seen with with every team that we've discussed today, is that the, the full-backs are key to the system. And for Villarreal, this is as true uh, under Marcelino as it is now under Cayeca. Um 
I'm keen to get your view as someone who who follows La Liga. Uh, we've spoken about this a lot on the podcast, you know, with regards to the Premier League. But for many of the modern systems, it seems uh, fullbacks are arguably almost the most important structural pieces in the team. Is this the case in Spain? I mean, structurally, I'd say definitely. I mean, you can say in terms of um, in terms of you know training and philosophies and, and etc. Uh, when teams want to try and play good football and have a lot of the ball, it's very much about positional play. It's very much about uh, you know, you'll in training you'll have a lot of games with sort of rondos or kind of small-sided games where it, it basically encourages the players to kind of work and overload. And fullbacks or wingbacks, they're vital in this. Um, they're vital in terms of you know being that spare option. They obviously give the opposition wingers something to think about. I mean, when you're playing against teams that uh, are playing with wingbacks in in sort of modern football, like in the last couple of seasons. Sometimes I would almost say that the best thing to do would be to almost sit your own wingers on them or sit your own fullbacks on them in order to kind of peg them back. I mean, uh, wingbacks are just uh, vital pieces in terms of they're, they're definitely someone that, that teams need to keep an eye on. Um, you obviously can't leave them in acres and acres of space for the switch, so it, it can stretch teams. Um, a lot of the time now, I mean, with Jaime Costa and Mario Gaspar at Villarreal, both of them can deliver. Uh, Mario especially. I mean, he's earned Spain call-ups off the back of the fact that he is a very interesting marauding fullback. Um, but, I mean, I mean, they are they are just vital, really. I mean, whenever it comes to, you know, you'll have these sort of rondos where, um, say if you had a, a 3v3 inside a, a square, for example, and then you had a few players on, on the outside of the square that couldn't come in but they they were involved and the idea would be that you know when one team has possession they can use these players on the outside as walls sort of thing i mean the fullbacks are the walls in this really that that's the when you take rondos when you kind of extrapolate it out of the training drill where you're trying to keep the ball off people and and work these numerical advantages when it comes down to playing on an 11 side field the when you're sort of I suppose in these sort of drills, you want to be keeping the ball in short, uh, in small spaces. Sorry, I mean as you saw, for example, with with Guardiola's uh, Bayern Munich, they would like to keep the ball at high tempo in a small space and then look to switch it. And and this would be encouraged by when you had rondos in training, whatever. Uh, you would have these players on the outside of the square that couldn't come into the square, and obviously they opened the pitch up massively. Um, and, and these the, the wing backs in Villarreal system. They are these pieces. They are you can keep the ball in these short spaces. You can move it. You can drag the opposition over to force them to come and get the ball off you. And, and ultimately, you know, the, the wing backs are these spare men. That they are the ones that, that stretch the opposition. Um, and and they're the ones that give you that out ball that sometimes you need, regardless of how good your technicians are. Okay, uh, we have one more video uh, coming out in the La Liga Tactics series. We're going to cover Las Palmas. Um, Simon, can you give us a little indication of what we can expect from that? Well, um, Las Palmas, they are this. Well, th- there's two teams in La Liga that have already gone through three coaches this season, which seems quite crazy. Um, but uh, not too long ago, Paco Jemez, he's been appointed. Um, that will previously be known from uh, he managed Granada to not not a great deal of success. He managed Ravacano on a shoestring budget to just keep fighting and playing a really aesthetically pleasing style of football. Um, and then he went off to Cruz Azul in, in in Mexico. Things maybe didn't go as well as he might have hoped. But but he's now back in the Liga and he's a big big personality. Uh, eventually the video will kind of get through to you know the contemporary to the modern day to what Jemez is going to be looking to do his first game will be uh, at home in the Copa del Rey against Valencia on um, the evening of the 3rd of January um, and, and the games are going to come thick and fast in January in the Liga you've got the Copa del Rey and you've also got obviously league games so he'll be looking to make some changes very very quickly he's already said that he would want eight players at least to go um, that even includes their top goal scorer Loic Remy he'll probably leave so they are going to be making a lot of changes and it will also kind of hark back to this season. I mean, they started the campaign with Manolo Marquez, uh, who was promoted from um, getting their second team promoted from the third division in Spain. He came in and then resigned, and he had his reasons for that, which which will explain. Um, then Paco Yesteran, he came in, having come off the back of doing dreadfully at, at Valencia last season. He came in, had a chance to extend his losing streak to a La Liga record run, and then and then he went. So it's basically going to talk through you know the problems at La Palmas this season, what's gone wrong, what Jemez is going to offer, and seeing as they're coming into the new year. Um, really, really struggling and looking like they could go down, despite having some really, really talented players. Uh, it's kind of going to look through what they've done wrong and how they can kind of amend things. 
Okay, uh, and finally, before I let you go, uh, who's going to win the league? <laughs> who's going to win the league? This is this is always an interesting question, but I mean, given the mm. fact that after El Clasico, uh, Barcelona, they've managed to open up, you know, like a four a fourteen point lead, even though Real Madrid have got a game in hand, something like that. Um, you, you can only say Barcelona at this point. They look balanced. They look like they can maintain the momentum. If they can add a couple more interesting players in January in terms of offering some pace, you've had you know the likes of Felipe Coutinho mentioned. He would be a very very interesting addition as well. I mean, basically they are signing to consolidate what they already have, and they're signing to balance the squad that already looks quite good. Uh, you look at the likes of Real Madrid. They've got no identity. Uh, I I think that kind of they're going to be putting their eggs in the Champions League basket already. If they get knocked out of the Champions League, I don't really see a future for Zinedine Zidane at the club, regardless of the fact that obviously he has done so, so well for them in such a short period of time. Um, and then with, I don't think that Valencia potentially have, you know, the 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 resources to kind of keep pace this season. I mean, maybe in two years' time, yeah, sure. Um, but with that, And then with Atletico Madrid, finally, I mean, obviously they're still, well, they went unbeaten in the league for so, so long. They've now got Diego Costa back. They have Vitolo to call upon. Um, but I, I don't think that they're going to be gaining enough ground to kind of keep pace with Barcelona. I think that they can probably be confident of a top three finish. I think Diego Costa is a really big signing for them. But I just can't really see anyone catching Barcelona at this point. OK, I, I do promise to let you go after this one. But uh, Philippe Coutinho, you mentioned him there. If he goes to Barcelona, is, is he supposed to just be a, re- a replacement for Iniesta eventually? How do, you, how do you see him being used? I think that that's, that's kind of been the line that a lot of people have taken for a long, long while. Because obviously, this kind of transfer saga, it, it goes back a few windows. Um, the Catalan press are always very, very keen to push this idea. And obviously, the easy, the easy jo- sort of dots to join would be the fact that obviously Iniesta, although he signed this lifetime contract with the club, you know, that that's... You know, it's it's not the reality, is it really? I mean, he he's been very very good this season, but you would think that next season will be where he's used a little bit here and there, as and when. Um, but you know, just see how things go. You you would see someone like Coutinho in terms of his skill set, in terms of his elegance. He he would be a, a very much a player that can sort of slot into a role where he is very neat and tidy in the ball. He he can offer own product. He can offer the final ball. Um, he, he offers maybe a bit more of a goal threat in central midfield than Barcelona have had for, for quite a while now. Um, so he'd definitely be an interesting player. I could definitely see that he would come in and, and he would immediately obviously challenge Iniesta for that role. You're not going to be spending you know around 150 million euros total for a player and not expecting him to play you know at least once every two games. I think that'd be a bit insane. And it, it could almost free um, Iniesta to come into the game in the last half an hour rather than maybe be taken off after the hour. So it'll be interesting, obviously, they've got a couple of competitions to weigh up. They've got the Copa del Rey, uh, which will make things a little bit, you know, uh, the schedule a bit jammed this month. Um, then you've got, obviously, the Champions League, where d- there will be a little bit of rotation here and there. Um, and, and if there's one there's one player who can, if there's one manager, rather, that can successfully sort of manage a transition from a great like Iniesta into a, a player such as Coutinho, who seems to kind of have that, that ability to maybe not you know hit the heights of Iniesta, but he, he's he's much much better than than what they currently have uh, in terms of being that uh, creative presence that can offer some goals and end product from midfield. Uh, Valverde, Valverde will know exactly how to use him, and and I think that gradually it, it was something interesting that I saw um, from Guardiola when when Valverde very first took over at, at Barca. He said that first of all he would win over the players, and after that he would win over the rest. And and I think that this group very much trusts in Valverde. He's a very clever man. He's a very well spoken man. He's a very likable man, and and really he he would be the kind of person that you would want um, in charge of you know such a big changing of the guard. I suppose it it would be described as. Mm. Okay, Simon. Thanks so much for joining us, and hopefully we'll uh, speak to you again soon. Yeah, no problem. It's been a pleasure. Anytime. <laughs>